What up, what up? Hey. So What's going want, on, man? You want to do the intro today? Shoot, are we doing the intro? We should. Let's, let, I just have to say this is totally unrelated, but there was a live full-grown bear inside the Stanley Hotel here in Colorado today. How did it get there? No one knows. <laughs> they don't was, know how a bear got in. Is, is it like near the woods or... Um, the Stanley Hotel is where they shot The Shining. Okay. It's that hotel. And all I saw was a clip of a large bear just standing on top of the very nice tables in the lobby and just kind of grunting around doing its thing. That makes sense. I mean, I don't know. When I think of Colorado, maybe not Colorado. I definitely think of that when I think of like Montana. Definitely Montana. Just like bear stuff. I think of uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, The Revenant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was not quite that. Just Colorado things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, yeah, go ahead. I, I have real quick is apparently the ramp like a big thing. Yeah. Yeah, I live uh, one block away from USC Coliseum. And uh, that's where the Rams are currently playing. And it is a madhouse. I went to the Chargers last weekend. Um, and they play where the LA Galaxy played down in Carson, California. And there was a decent turnout. But actually, they were playing the Seahawks. And I think there was more Seahawks fans there than Chargers fans. But with this Rams stuff, um, no, nah, it's got a serious fan base. I didn't think that LA would uh, embrace them as much as they have. But uh, – it's getting pretty serious, so it'll be interesting to see how this season goes. I guess we'll have front row seats. So, Yeah, people love their football, man. Yeah, which is really surprising. Considering all we know now, it, it has not phased people. But then again, we have something similar like that going on in the Oval Office, so I, sh- I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Yeah, did you see that Broncos wide receiver is retiring to pursue his PhD so he can study uh, mental health and CTE? I did not. I just saw it like two seconds ago. I, I forgot his name, but he's a wide receiver for the Broncos. I mean, but I feel like that's what you're seeing more and more. I, I, I think the guy's name is Jonathan Tuck. I believe his last name is Tuck. Maybe it's Justin Tuck. But he was a linebacker for the Philadelphia Eagles. And uh, he recently graduated. Went, he got out the NFL and went to Wharton's uh, business program, the NBA program. And he's now an investment banker, I believe, on Wall Street. And I think that that's becoming more and more of a thing where people are just trying to get as much money as they can for the least amount of damage, you know, do three or four years, get out and actually do like another major career, which is an interesting turn of events in the NFL. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's he was a tight end. It's Julius Thomas. Okay. He's pursuing a PhD in psychology. Oh, this is the you're talking about the Broncos guy. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to get that that fact out there. So yeah, go ahead, uh intro this episode eight and then uh and kind of what our topic is and questions we'll be doing. Okay, so we're gonna be talking about hip hop today. So this is gonna be a fun one. So Joe and I got into a little debate over who is the best rapper of the 2010s, which would be our, our class of hip-hop as it stands today. We all know the big three 
which would be Drake, Kendrick, and Cole. So we got into a little debate as to who has more influence, who's technically the better rapper, who makes the best music out of the two best-selling artists out of that, uh, that triumvirate. That would be uh, Cole, uh, Drake and Kendrick. And we had a little bit of a disagreement on that. And Cole. Drake and Cole. We're, we're going to bring Cole into it, too? When you say triumvirate, that denotes three, so I figured that that's what you meant. Yeah, I did, but I meant the the top selling two out of those, which would be uh, Drake and Kendrick. Got it. Okay. Cole is more like the king of the underground, even though he's mainstream. Alrighty. All right, so let's get into it. Well, I think the main thing I said first about um, Kendrick was I felt like the reason why I would put him as number one is I feel like he transcends hip hop. And I guess in a way you could say that about Drake as well. But my argument is that I would never have put, I would have never included Drake as a pure rapper. To me, Drake from the very beginning has been a pop star, or at least from his second album. Um, and what I said in the, in the argument, uh, one was that Kendrick, in my view, was a rapper that transcended hip hop. Um, and then two, uh, on Kendrick that um, All Right is probably the culmination of the entire hip hop movement. I don't see how it gets more complete than that song in terms of trying to embody all the messages over the last uh, almost 50 years. It'll be 50 years next year um, since um, Rapper's Delight came out and Sugar Hill Gang. Um, and then the last point I made that we definitely had a contentious argument about was uh, that I believe that if you were to compare different people to different artists, um, we really hadn't got too much into Kendrick yet. But regarding Drake, I said his kind of previous artist, uh, Kindred Spirit, is probably Elvis. Um, and, and we didn't really flush it out because you were like, let's save it for an episode. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny because it's it's good that you mentioned rapper's delight and the fact that rap is turning fifty, because the the Achilles heel in Drake's legacy, or the the thing that tarnishes him and keeps him out of the goat conversations for a lot of people, is the ghostwriting, or the uh, the fact that he used reference tracks, which is funny because that's how rap started. If it started at rapper's delight. It was a song written by somebody else and performed by the rappers. So, excuse, I'm just going to let you know on my side, that was a Ma Maserati that drove by next to an ice cream truck. Over the next 30 seconds, you're probably going to be hearing an ice cream truck. Just want you to be prepared. <laughs> so this isn't planned, but I like it. <laughs> it's, it's a nice little ambiance that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Oh, this is a soundtrack to my life now, man. We have more ice cream trucks. Um, that drive through my neighborhood uh, near South Central LA. And I, I couldn't remember the last time, I know we're kind of going off tangentially a little bit here, but I couldn't remember the last time that I had seen an ice cream truck in a neighborhood. I think the last time was, <clears throat> I was perhaps 14 or 15 in Minnesota. And even the last few, like when I lived there before moving out to LA, um, I didn't see one ice cream truck. So here it's, it's, definitely still a thing um anyways it passed by now 
But yeah, sounded, I hear yeah. it a lot, and I've heard all the Christmas songs all summer. Um, I've heard the theme from True Grit, which one of them is such a random theme truck. Yeah, that's weird. I feel like at some point we need to make a list of you know appropriate ice cream truck songs. Maybe even make an album. You said inappropriate? Oh, no. Appropriate. Appropriate. But appropriate. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Which is probably inappropriate. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure it's more appropriate than the theme from Cougar. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I don't see what they're trying to do there. I might need to rewatch that movie because I don't get the reference. Um, I think it's just the West. I don't know. <laughs> times, you know, you don't think of the West as having a strong culture compared to the East in New York and, and like kind of a love affair with its own history, but it's starting to get that sure, especially here uh, in Los Angeles. And it's, it's like a macro Western culture. I mean, obviously you hear California love anytime you go to any event here, um, going to the Chargers game, they played it and, you know, everybody gets it. You hear it on the radio like once a week. Um, another hip hop reference right there. Yeah, and it's funny that you brought that up, too. It's interesting because I just watched that uh, Eagles documentary on Netflix. and Perfect. The, uh-huh, yeah, the whole L.A. sound back then in the uh, late 60s, early 70s was chasing after this desert, like, outlaw Western kind of sound. Yeah. So yeah. anyway. it's and Yeah, so it's very much uh, like that now. Sorry, I'm. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. I am multitasking because I'm trying to buy my USC tickets for when they play Arizona State. But anyways, uh, <laughs> we completely digress. So You're getting if you want to take a break to get some ice cream, and that's what this is really about, then we can just hit pause. I think it kind of is all the temptation every day, all day. Plus, <laughs> it's warm. But um, back to. Uh, to Rapper's Delight. It is 50 years old. Um, and I just, so so the first point about Kendrick and All Right, or about Kendrick himself, but then the song All Right, I don't see how, there's places that hip hop can go after All Right, right? But mm-hmm. I feel like All Right closes the chapter of uh, hip hop as like a black art form, black in America, the next stage of bebop, jazz, um, how avant-garde you can get within the traditional bounds of like really and still be called hip-hop before you go to another genre and that was the point i was trying to make about the song all right yeah and i think that's a strong argument i i wouldn't argue against that because that is one of the best songs and especially the visuals that came with it you've seen the video right yes of course and the video is a masterpiece it's one of the best uh hip-hop videos one of the best music videos ever made and it is still, it just does encapsulate the entire experience. And it, it kind of says where we are as a culture in America from one side, kind of the anti-Trump side, anti-Trumpism. So, but to, t- to kick it up a notch, I would argue that Drake has never made, and this is why I would not even put Drake as top rapper, not consider him as a rapper, is because I don't feel like he's made a song that is a true rap, let's say, or hip-hop classic in, in that sense. 
in the way that can so a hip-hop classic has to be political no i would not say that's the truth but what i would say is that drake he had a couple of hip-hop songs his first mixtape for sure i mean you just think about over that was a hip-hop song um but I'd say by the time he came out with his first full-length LP that was not considered a mixtape, he had already started creating this new ground where it was, it was R&B pop that was influenced by hip-hop, but it was no longer hip-hop. Yeah, I think it took him a while because I think we're starting our timelines at different spots because Drake's catalog for me goes all the way back to 2006 with Room right. for Improvement. Right. Exactly. And those were hip-hop mixtapes. Exactly. And and actually, no, I, I, I completely agree with you that when we talk about his mixtapes, we can't count them as part of the 2010 because they weren't yeah. in the era. That's a good point. And so when I look at Drake's body of work in the 2010s, I'm, I'm literally looking within those confines. And maybe the closest thing to that is, um, if you're reading This Is Too Late, had a couple of tracks on there that might be considered like hip hop tracks. But as a project in and of itself, I still consider it pop music, just maybe a little bit darker pop music. Hmm. And I never considered, I think when Drake said he just rapped and it went pop, I, I feel like he's dead on the money with that. Hmm. I think what he was doing was very original and it became pop music. So I think uh, you do have a point by saying what he was doing in uh, the late 2000s, I guess it wouldn't be considered part of this new wave in the 2010s, which is where, where we are now, which is where the uh, this discussion is taking place. But when I think of Drake's legacy and his catalog, it does start back there for me. And, and I do think he gets kind of slept on when it comes to his credibility as a lyricist, not just for actually being able to write R&B songs, but as a rapper and he was trying to find his sound back then he was doing a lot of stuff with like Fonte and Elzai and uh people of that caliber so he did have more of a uh a late 2000s earthy kind of hip-hop vibe about him and then that translated into his albums that did sound more mainstream because he had more polished production so I guess that's where you could say it went pop but that's just typically what happens when rappers move from that mixtape stage onto the album stage. They do get more polished production. And Kendrick has made a departure from that. I just would argue that it doesn't always land for me. I think the overly jazzy instrumentals just sound kind of chaotic and it doesn't come together nicely. Outside of a couple of songs onto Pimple Butterfly. For the most part, I didn't think that album was as great as everybody else did. I mean, I still think it was better than Damn, to be honest with you. Uh, well, yeah, see, Damn to me, this is like my big quintessential argument with Kendrick because he does make some really brilliant music, but he has a lot of stuff that just falls flat and it's and stuff that's not that great after the first listen. And since we talked about Bears and the Revenant, I got to make my Kendrick Revenant reference. So I think... Albums like Damn or even To Pimp a Butterfly are like the movie The Revenant in that they, you can tell that it's a work of art, that the production behind it is genius level. And it's, 
it's somebody that has a dr- tremendous amount of talent and a message to portray. And that's kind of what we saw with Leonardo DiCaprio's de- the performance in The Revenant, along with Inyari 2's uh, directing. That being said, as much respect as I have for the process and the finished product, I don't need to see The Revenant more than once. I saw it, I got it, and let's keep it pushing. Ooh. I mean, how often do people go back and listen to old Kendrick albums compared to listening to other stuff? Does it really have the impact I, that people think it has? In all fairness, I listen to old Kendrick albums more than I listen to old Drake albums. And more longevity for me than Drake does. Drake is like, when he hits, I'm on it for like a month. Maybe, or at least not, maybe not since views, but before views, you know, I'd be on it for a good amount of time, maybe a month to three. And just that's all I played was Drake. But um, after that year, um, I I rarely ever listened to a Drake song, you know, with that song again. Um, And a lot of times it feels, it's so in tune with the sound of the time that, and and it's such Drake's style to be on trend that mm-hmm. it's in some ways trapped in the time that he originally recorded it. I would ne- like I never listened to Over Again. I never listened to anything. I think I would say the furthest back I would go right now is if you're reading this and I still don't really listen to it like that. Where I still I, I still listen to uh, both Mad Kid. Uh, or was it Good Kid, Mad City? Mm-hmm. Um, I still listen to Pimp a Butterfly. I still listen to Untitled Remastered. I, I still listen to all of it. Now, it could be that I have a, a Los Angeles bias because I live here now and it's part of the culture. But I wouldn't say that any place I've ever lived has given me that much bias to the music of that region. And I, I think it's more just the big difference between me and you is you don't see a place, you don't see jazz as, as a great analog or vehicle, like a great analog, I would say, for hip-hop, where I think jazz and hip-hop are so strongly intertwined. Um, and I think that Kendrick brought that out um, and explored that relationship more so than any other rapper of the 2010s. Outside, the only one who's even gotten close has been Jay-Z in the 2010 era. Yeah. And I think it has its place. I I do understand how the two genres are intrinsically tied, especially when it comes to just experimenting with sound. And that's what jazz did. And hip hop does that, does that well, I would say. So I can see how they're tied together, but I just, it just doesn't do it for me. And I definitely have a strong East Coast bias when it comes to sound. Like I grew up, I'd say I came of age during the era of the sample. So I would prefer like a looped sample over like a jazzy Kanye beat, like eight times out of 10, probably. Well, but my thing is, is that that's kind of confusing because um, the original East Coast sound was funk music um, that was being remixed by DJs and a lot of that funk came out of the jazz tradition. So like what era was that? The the late 1970s, early eighties. Yeah. So I wasn't around back then. I'm, I just mean 
for for my time growing up, the type of music that I came of age listening to. So you so, East yeah. Coast music from that period, as opposed yeah. to East the like DNA of East Coast hip hop. Yeah, I don't go back that far. I I would say I grew up listening to Slick Rick and Biggie and all of them, and I I definitely uh, and like Dana Dane and uh, and stuff like that, but. I don't listen to it now. The only really old stuff that I still listen to is probably Tribe, and that's every once in a while. So I don't go super far back with my nostalgia. And so I guess that's that's the... I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Because you don't do that, It for you, Kendrick is not necessarily that combination. Or the, like I said, that kind of the sound he had on To Pimp a Butterfly isn't a com- combination because it's really the the roots of the music are not really in your purview as much. Where for me, I'm looking at, like I said, that 50 year mark, like I believe every story has a good beginning, middle and an end. And I'm looking at the beginning and the middle. And I feel like Kendrick brings both of them to strong closure with what he's been doing for his last few albums. And, and, I, and I'm not saying that hip hop is dead. I think hip hop is alive as an influence, but I just don't see how after, after Jay-Z bows out, after Kendrick finishes his career, um, we can talk about Cole in a second because I feel like Cole is talented, but I honestly don't think that Cole drives the music or the culture as much as Kendrick or as, uh, Kendrick does or Jay Z. Um, I think that we'll be on to the next stage where, um, just like I'm just thinking of a genre that that you know moved on. Um, let's say blues had its roots in like Delta folk country music. And then it kind of culminated in, I want to say probably the early eighties. Um, I think that that's, and that, that period of time, what we're talking about the 1920s to the eighties. So it's about a 50 year t- time span. I think that that's what we're looking at with hip hop where, you know, it'll be a strong influence, but you won't see, uh, you won't see blues men dominating any kind of chart, you know, um, yeah. it will be a different art form that maybe has some hip hop influence, but it's no longer hip hop. Not as not as we've known it, you know. Yeah, it's already the torch is already being passed. So I mean, the last the last people that are holding up the mantle for hip hop as we knew it are pretty much elder millennials, people in our age bracket. And once they're done rapping, I mean it's going to become something else. So I'm with you there. And I'm not sure what comes next. I'm not sure what comes after this because I'm, yeah, I don't understand the direction that music is taking, but who knows, maybe we'll get something great afterwards. Um, I mean, so I, the, before we, you know, move on to kind of the next big point, I do feel like, Part of the reasons why, why the reason why the mumble rappers are so hard for us to listen to, and and most people I'd say who are maybe our age, or let's say, so you're thirty, I'm thirty one, right? And we have, I would say, people twenty seven and older. It's difficult for them to listen to the mumble rappers, is because I think it is enough of a departure from what we would consider hip hop to where it's mm-hmm. in the genre. Yeah. 
And just another point, if we are, before we move, because uh, I did just want to say the reason why I think uh, Drake is more influential than Kendrick and why I think his overall catalog is better is not just consistency, because even when Drake has had a couple of subpar albums by his standards, they're still very good, very listenable albums. I would say where Kendrick is drawing his inspiration a lot from music of the past, Drake is kind of trying to find the next thing to latch onto. And he's trying to find new ways to push the genre. And I feel like Drake doesn't get enough credit for doing that. I feel like he's bringing this whole new Caribbean infused Toronto type hip hop R&B style to the forefront. And a lot of people don't like it. A lot of people don't want to hear Kendrick doing it. They don't want to hear their favorite mainstream lyricist trying to sing hooks. But I think that hip hop and R&B have always been intrinsically tied and nobody's ever found a better formula to marry the two better than Drake did. And I still, I, uh, I still stand by that. Well, there's, I, and I just don't even know fair comparison because the difference between a, a Kendrick and a Drake is Kendrick is more of your singer songwriter, right? Like a Bob Dylan. And actually when I think of Kendrick and I think of his kind of past musician kind of kindred spirit, I would either consider it to be Bob Dylan or John Lennon. And where he writes his own stuff, he has a very specific way that he wants to organize it and it goes out there and it's messy, but it's all him. Where Drake has a, and we all know it's been in the media, he has an entire machine built around him to create on the most on-trend pop music possible. And he, you know, he has at least he's over ten ghostwriters. Um, he's all he's got, you know, all of the best uh, beat makers or producers out there uh, trying to make beats that fit that style. And half the time, with the beats that he's actually going on, they're songs that demos that other rappers made first and he and he finds them catchy and he, he sees that they're getting success in places like Atlanta and then basically because it hasn't hit the national stage yet he co-ops the song, makes his own verse buys them out of the song and then puts his verse on it and yeah, um, I would say he's got to be involved in the process because some of the things he puts on there are pretty personal, but his work is much more by committee then I believe Kendrick's work is. And that's well, yeah. Another, that's I another, think that's how you get a better product. What was that? I said, I think that's how you get a better product. I mean, there's that. I, I just, I understand the argument why someone would say there's more integrity in somebody just putting out the whole product themselves. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't always lead to the best product. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily get too much into a value judgment of that. I just think mm-hmm. it's intrinsically different. For example, so... Both Bob Dylan and Elvis were extremely influential musicians. Mm-hmm. Bob Dylan wrote for everybody. And everybody is everybody from like between nineteen fifty and nineteen maybe not nineteen fifty, but definitely nineteen sixty five and and nineteen seventy nine did some version of a Bob Dylan song. And some of them were he he never was even credited on. Um and so he was kind of this creative force behind pop music in general and particularly folk or country um, styled music. Elvis was kind of the opposite. 
Elvis was more of an ambassador of other people's music. And he put a twist on it that made it either digestible to groups that had never uh, would never have gotten exposure otherwise. Um, but he, then he also put a flair on it that defined future music. And that's exactly what you're saying Drake does. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why I said to me, if Drake had any other similar artists in the past, it's like Elvis. Well, Elvis would have multiple number one hits uh, out at the same time. Also, um, Elvis took music from musicians in Mississippi, uh, black musicians in Mississippi, and brought it to a much broader audience in a in a way that was more t- um, digestible for the mainstream. And mm-hmm. I that's, you pointed out that that's what Drake is doing with not only the Caribbean rappers in um, Toronto, but I would look at Drake's career and a lot of his influences from Atlanta. So much so when I was in Atlanta, people thought he was from there. And I said, no, he's from Toronto. They're like, no, he's not. He's here all the time. (laughs) (laughs) He's not not from Atlanta. Um, And what I think Drake did was he he took Black American music and he made it world music, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and and he took it beyond even just Canada, but he took it to the Middle East. He took it to Europe in a way that it was there. It was an underground thing, but it wasn't it wasn't mainstream pop music in those places. And it was after Drake came to the fore. And I also would argue that a reason why it was more digestible when it was Drake is because he's because he's half white and he's light skinned. You know, I mean, he's he's quite fair skinned. He's me and him are about the same complexion. And there's no doubt. I mean, do you look at Bob Marley? his music was much more digestible to European audiences because he was more fair skinned. Yeah. So there's always that uh, racial component that does come into play too, that it's kind of just bubbling under the surface that nobody really addresses. So people do think that Drake has unfair advantages when it comes to his mainstream success. And a lot of other rappers have kind of said, that's one of the big reasons why he's successful. And that's a value judgment, though. I wouldn't even want to get into that because it's like, what is fairness? Is there fairness in nature? He was, Drake was the one who said Macklemore needs to shut up when, uh, it, I believe it was 2012 when Macklemore won Best Hip Hop Album at the Grammys over Kendrick's debut album, Good Kid, Mad City, and texted Kendrick and posted it all over Twitter saying, you got robbed and this should have never happened. It was actually Drake who came out and said, dude, you won. Stop apologizing. Yeah, and I, and I, I would agree with that sentiment. I think it's stupid. Um, I, I think it's dumb. And it, I'm trying to think of a, a way to put this that, that sounds correct, right? Uh, I'm trying to turn feelings into words right now. Uh, I think you have to accept institutions for what they are um, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Unless you're the one who owns the institution, right? <laughs> so like the Oscars so white thing, for example. I think it's great that they did the protest, but from a but from a personal perspective, not necessarily in terms of doing the protest. I'm not saying you shouldn't protest. But what I'm saying is, is that the expectation that the Oscars are going to be something more than 
what like the elite of America and, and with all that entailed, um, I think is naive, right? Like I, I think it's stupid to like assume or to to assume that 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 institutions are gonna completely change their goal uh, in terms of like the socioeconomic side just because of the race side. So what I, what I, I guess what I'm trying to say in terms of the, the Drake situation is like you can be mad and say that that he's been more financially successful because he's biracial and I think that that's a fair argument. But to say that oh the reason why people enjoy his music more is because he's biracial or that it speaks to more people and that your music, that the only reason why your music isn't speaking to more people is because you're black. I think, I just don't know if I completely buy that argument because there's been one, there's been black uh, artists, for example, we talk about Aretha passed away, who everybody knows R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Everyone knows you made me feel like a natural woman and it, it became a mainstream um, sound, but then also too, I think that Drake, in his approach, has gone out of his way to be as inclusive as possible. And one thing is that a lot of a lot of artists in general tend to be very introspective and personal with their music, and in some ways that makes it inaccessible to other people. And I think that what Drake has done, and I'll give him credit for that. Any of the, any of the big people do that's, that say Bob Dylan, that say Bob Marley, that say uh, John Lennon, that say, uh, I'm just trying to think of another one, Michael Jackson uh, is they Prince, my wife just chimed in. Um, you don't make, they make, very personal music, but they make the personal universal, and that's a difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Drake, um, I will give him credit for that. Um, but that doesn't mean that I still think that I would call his genre of music hip-hop. Yeah, and as to, to tie this into our, our argument that we're already having, um, numbers-wise, I think Kendrick is right on par with Drake in a lot of ways. I mean, didn't Damn surpass um, Drake's previous work as far as uh, streaming didn't it break some records damn sales versus what is it views or is it what's the there was the more life more life yeah more life uh it yeah yeah more than more life and he's telling very specific Compton stories Kendrick does the opposite of Drake when, when you say you take the personal and make it universal Kendrick is telling you a story that is very specific. Yet he has the Coachella appeal. He's still widely popular. So he's found a way to bring you into a world that very few people in this country actually experience, but has I won't say make it. He, I, won't, I won't say he made it relatable. I would say he made it uh, feel visceral, like you could understand it. That's definitely true, and I, I mean, I think that's the argument that people would make for damn why it won a Pulitzer was because of that aesthetic that you're describing. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But so, like, I don't think either one of them are bad, uh, or either one of them, like, it's they're both great musicians, right? Um, but I just think that they're fundamentally different in, in their approach and what they're accomplishing. And if it comes to, we're saying, what is the best hip-hop slash rap of the 2010s? To me, yeah, Kendrick owned it this decade. And... Uh, other people did a lot of great things, uh, but I think he's kind of, I think he's going to be the the kind of stamp, the the uh, closing chapter uh, of this stage of that music, and I think he's done a good job of it, you know. And I think it's really interesting because I I would also put Jay Z like Jay Z is interesting because he's been there for the entire ride almost. Yeah, pretty much. Which is insane. Um, and so I think when he gets on his way out, um, that that movement, at least this this uh, form of it as we know it, it's it's just it's on to the next thing, and that's that's how it should be, right? You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you there, and I think that Drake, if any rapper is following Jay Z's blueprint, no pun intended, it would be Drake. If somebody is poised to be as successful as a business uh, as a businessman as Jay-Z and be influential in other realms. I think we're we're only seeing Drake getting started basically. So it'll be interesting to see where his career takes him. I had to think about that. As a, in terms of a businessman, yes. I mean, he increased the entire yearly revenue of Toronto by like 4 million. Yeah. I I, I can agree with that. I would say he's the Canadian because I think there's a distinct cultural difference between the United States and Canada. And I think you can see that in the differences between Jay-Z and Drake. Mm-hmm. There is, but there are also a lot of similarities. Ontario is Canada, but it is very close to just being a state. It's very U.S. centric. Yeah, but it's still Canada, man. <laughs> it is. It is. But it's barely Canada. <laughs> I don't know, dude. I lived in Minnesota, and I think Minnesota has a strong culture. And it's not Canada. <laughs> you know? Canada's another another couple of deg- uh, degrees of latitude north. And I think it's the same way culturally, you know? <laughs> oh, you know, I got a lot of family up in Toronto. So, I, I think... But it is what it is, and I think, you know, Toronto in general, just in general, in every, not just Drake, but, you know, their sports, their art scene, uh, business scene. I mean, they've, Canada as a country, and Toronto specifically, has done some amazing things the last 50 years and, and grown in a way that very few uh, cities in the world have grown. And so it's, you know, hats off to them. And it's interesting. It used to be, you know, an NBA player, who's got drafted or, or traded to go to Toronto. It's like, what the hell? And now it's yeah. like, they're all excited to go there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's crazy to see how little things like that can change the entire perception of the city. And I including recently, the people that live within the city already. I recently watched the, the documentary on Vince Carter. I think it's Very called- good doc. Yeah. And Drake's in it, you know, talking about, he remembers, watching Vince Carter growing up and that, that you know if, if our listeners haven't 
seen it, I would definitely recommend it because it talks about all the things we're talking about with Toronto right now and much more in detail. And I also didn't know that um, that Vince Carter and Tony, uh, what's the name? T-Mac. Mm-hmm. Tracy McGrady. Tracy McGrady, thank you. That they were cousins and like kind of that they used to both play on Toronto together. Um, and then basically T-Mac was like, no, I want to be more of a star. So he went to Orlando. I didn't know any of that. Yeah, that I did know because I was a big uh, Vince Carter fan in high school. So um, I think the last thing was uh, kind of veering off of what we originally talked about, but it's something that came up a lot is like where J. Cole falls in all of this. Yeah, so J. Cole to me is a little Springsteen-ish. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. <laughs> he really is. He just shows up looking dusty. He's like, <laughs> he's like, I'm gonna look as homeless as possible. But it, he's like the voice of the people, like really the voice of the people. He's not, uh, he's not the best rapper, not technically, but his music makes you feel something. He feels like somebody you knew and that you would still be friends with. And that whenever you put people onto hip hop that aren't really into hip hop, I always I always want them to listen to J. Cole because I know they'll love it. Like you don't really have to love hip hop to get into J. Cole. The the subject matter of his songs, the fact that he makes his own beats and he's not that great of a producer, it sounds like I'm dissing him. I'm really not, because he gives it all that very sound cloudy kind of down to earth feel like he made it in his dorm room, which is how he got started. He, people would argue that one of his mixtapes, the warm up, is a classic. And that was like dorm room J. Cole. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I did not like J. Cole when he first came out. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, I don't think, like, I kind of like that Simba song. Uh, and then I think it was the one with the garden of good and evil on it or whatever with the, uh, like a, a black kind of, uh, figurine on the front. And it's yeah. white. What's the name? Born of that? center. You said sports center is the name? No, of born, no, born center. <laughs> born center. <laughs> yeah. That was his like do or die. I might end up being a flop album. That's when I feel like he actually finally started to change. And it's like, okay, this dude's an artist now. He's not just literally watching Sports Center, you know, to talk about Sports Center and like making a bunch of basketball references and yeah. pickoff references, which I felt he was doing in the warm up to be honest. Yeah, he was. And he he actually addressed all of that. He released like a caveat album that was uh or it was a mixtape rather at the same time as Born Center. It was called Yours Truly. And on one song with the Lauren Hill sample is called Cold Summer he addresses all of these things. He talks about like, if this next album flops, like I could be going back to the work at the post office with my mom. And they're saying that this could really be happening. And I'm really stressed out about it. Also, Jay-Z just called me into his office and yelled at me and said, you need to make a hit. And he's just wondering what he's even doing in the industry. Cause he's making music that he doesn't like. I mean, that was the album that had let Nas down. You remember let Nas down? Yeah. I remember when it came out. Yeah, so just for the listeners, he wrote a song called Let Nas Down, where he talks about uh, his idol, Nas. Word of mouth basically getting back to Cole that Nas heard his album and thought it was trash. 
And so he got, he felt a way about it and made this song called Let Nas Down, where he's talking, where he's kind of defending himself, but kind of agreeing with Nas that he's headed in the wrong direction. He's like, you are supposed to be the guy who, who brings hip hop back to its roots and you're out here chasing hits. And so he was like, what am I doing with this? Then of course, Nas came back and made a, and threw a verse on that song and called it Made Nas Proud, which was a, a cool moment in hip hop for me and for every Cole fan to hear that, where he basically said, no, I understand what you're doing. I understand the hustle. And every Nas fan, because there is a culture behind Nas fandom, for sure. Oh, for sure. Oh, people will not admit that a Nas album is trash. <laughs> no. <laughs> they're, they're, Nas fans are, it's the church of Nas. Like, or that takeover was better than Ether. If you listen to both of them now, <laughs> but well, that's a whole nother topic for a whole nother day. <laughs> but that's, and ever since then, to bring it back to your point, um, that was 2014 Forest Hills Drive, where you and I saw him for the first time in Minnesota. And, and yeah, uh, yeah that was the album the, where I mean, he was fully himself at that point uh-huh. it was on his way there. And then, you know, uh, that was his graduation. Mm-hmm. And I also thought Chain and Day was a great record off of uh, off of Born Center. I've been listening to that one a lot lately because it's very uh, it's very telling of the direction that Cole was headed. And so he's looking at all this success and going, you know what? I I don't want to be this rapper that flops, that lets his fans down, and doesn't stay true to himself. And then the rest is kind of history. He's just got gotten back into his bag, and he makes the exact music that he was making on the mixtapes. That's stuff that's from the heart. And that's the appeal of Cole. While he's... Say what? To be honest with you, what's your, in your opinion, what's the best song on Born Center? Is it the one that you're just talking about? Um, My favorite song on Born Center, I like Land of the Snakes and Chaining Day. I think Chaining Day is my favorite song on there. It's kind of, it's just got that vibe to it that just makes me feel like I'm driving around Raleigh in October. <laughs> it's, it's just a, it's that classic mixtape Cole vibe. Okay. And it's basically a euphemism for like signing to Rockefeller. My favorite ones are, um, are Forbidden Fruit and Crooked Smile. Great songs too, actually. And Forbidden Fruit, you know, again, goes back to what we said. Who's on Forbidden Fruit? Kendrick, <laughs> but he didn't have a verse. He I didn't. remember everybody, including myself, was pissed off that he didn't have a verse on there. And it's still a great song regardless. But I think he just brought, I don't know what the story is, why Kendrick is on it. Because you really don't need Kendrick on that song. No. Um, but it's still a fantastic song. They were labels were doing that for a while where they were putting people as features that didn't really need to be on the record. And I felt like it was just to juice the album a little bit and to do a little bit of promotion for other artists. Indeed. Uh, so one other thing I kind of want to talk to you about, because you tagged me in it the other day and you go back and forth. I think you I feel like you go back and forth on him internally. Um, is so. So what's up with button? Where is he? Where is he sitting for us? Where? Who, where does he fall? Like, what is 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 he important or is he not important? 
You said why is he important? When I think of Joe Button, all I think of is pump it up. That's the yeah. thing I think of. Pump it up was a jam though. I, I don't know why people act like like they didn't have pump it up on their mix CDs. Oh, they did, but it was like the same way that you had last taffy on your mix. <laughs> no. No, dude. Uh I see your point though, but no, I can't co-sign that. I can't. I did not put Laffy Taffy on a mixtape, let alone one with Pump It Up. You didn't go to the right house parties. Yeah, God. Oh uh, no, because now I'm thinking of that episode of Atlanta where they played Laffy Taffy at the frat house, and it got really weird. Uh yeah. I mean, I feel like if those are the house parties, maybe I was going to the right ones. <laughs> I'd rather be at the Pump It Up party. Honestly, if that's what's going on. But so <laughs> to answer your question, Joe Budden is an interesting character. And I don't know what box to put him in. I don't know what category he would fall into. So he is rapper turned TV, turned internet personality, turned cultural commentator. And now he's about to begin his new show on Revolt called uh, State of the Culture. And I hope that it doesn't suck because I do listen to the Joe Budden podcast. So he... Uh, he but you, had... gotta, you gotta give the audience the full story of your listening to that podcast because it's not like you just listen to it. Mm-hmm. You're a passive listener or that you've always been content with it. Yeah. It's so, a saga for you. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, so it has been a saga for real. So we can we'll just briefly kind of go through all this. So Joe Budden had Pump It Up and what, 0203? And he had a couple other club I records. Was 01. Oh, it wasn't that early, was it? Yeah. It wasn't that early. Let's see. It was 0203. Oh, you're right, 2003. You're right. Yeah. And that, it was in every movie, every. It was, like, it was a wave. Jay Z did a verse on it. It was, uh, it was a big record. And then uh, Joe Budden kind of. Oh, dude, I. All right, I'm looking at the charts right now. It didn't even it didn't hit number one. It the highest it got on the Billboard Hot 100 was 38. Yeah, it was still it was still a record that smashed. It was it was it was it was around. It was around. People liked it. It was a good dance song, especially for break dancers. But even looking at the highest it got for Billboard rap songs was number ten. So it wasn't even number one a uh, number one rap record. What was number one at that time? Just out of curiosity. At that time. Yeah. So we're talking about 2003, May of 2003. I'm going to look it up while you're, while you're continuing to talk about this. Okay. So long story short, so Budden goes down this path, doesn't want to do the label thing anymore. He, uh, he ends up just doing mixtapes and these mood music mixtape series. And by this point, nobody that was listening to Budden before that heard pump it up like me I fall into that category was really still listening to him but he was out there making these incredible mixtapes very deep raw passionate hip-hop that made you feel something it had a message and if you're they call it mood music for a reason and it it was really impactful stuff all right you ready yeah. for it yeah go ahead real quick uh so in April it had been I'm gonna go through like kind of the year 2003 so um Aaliyah died and Miss You by Aaliyah was like posthumously. Then short after that, what the big drop that year in March was In the Club by 50 Cent. Mm. Bad time to come in the game if you're anybody else. 
then Excuse Me Miss came out in April and, and was there for one week. Get Busy came out with Sean Paul next week in April and was there for one week. 21 Questions came out, and from May until June, 21 Questions by 50 Cent featuring Nate Dogg uh, was there. Yeah, that was because of the I Love You Like a Fat Kid Loves Cake line. 50 then, was on it before anybody. And then by July, you had Crazy in Love with Beyonce and Jay-Z. By August, Fronting with Pharrell and Jay-Z. By September, Baby Boy and Beyonce. Uh, Baby Boy, Beyonce, and Sean Paul. Uh, and so I, those are the big ones. And so this is the period of time that 50 is becoming big and the Jay-Z and Beyonce alliance is really kicking off. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And um, there was that bubbling sound that Button had that uh, a lot of other artists from the tri-state area up in New York and New Jersey kind of had a similar wave going on. So, but we're going to get back to uh, just Button specifically. So I would, I've reacted the same way. Literally everybody else reacted years later when uh, our buddy Trap tried to put Joe Budden on in the car. And I was like, dude, the pump it up guy, I'm not trying to hear Joe Budden right now. <laughs> and this is in like 2009, 2010. <laughs> and, and I literally, after I heard the mixtapes, I was like, this is incredible. I had no idea that he was doing this. And then uh, I tried to play it for some people later on and they said the same thing. Like, I do not want to hear Joe Budden right now, you nerd. And uh, so long story short, he has this... Uh, this good faith currency with real hip hop heads, people that are listening to mixtapes or I'd say people that have been exposed to him because he's not really big anymore, but he's been consistently putting out music. And I'd say around the time I got out of the Navy, he started to, his career started to come back a little bit where he was going after mainstream radio hits a little bit more than he had been doing songs with like tank and Lil Wayne and, uh, then he just dipped off. He did Rage in the Machine either, I think, like two years ago, and then said he retired from rap. He just did a verse again this past week with T-Pain. Uh, it is what it is. So during that time, he's been doing the Joe Budden podcast where he has a lot of respect as a lyricist. Oh, he also was signed to Eminem. He was in a group called Slaughterhouse. I was about they were pushing that for a while. I was like... You're not going to throw out Slaughterhouse? <laughs> I had to throw out Slaughterhouse. So he's he's in there with uh, Royce the 5'9", one of the best MCs around, Joel Ortiz and Crooked Eye. So they have this super group of MCs. They, Eminem tries to use his uh, fame to sell it. Every time they do a cypher, Eminem will come in and, and do like an acapella verse to try to promote it. It didn't really take off because this is around the time where Music is getting a little trappier. It's a lot more melodies, and people don't want to hear four rugged dudes just spitting bars. This, this is when Drake was popping off. I remember yeah. we were we were in Monterey, California at the time. Mm -hmm. We were at the PX, and Drake was becoming really big in Trey songs, and that was the direction things were going. And mm -hmm. these were four old guys. And, you know, I was really into Royce, so I was listening to some of the, the Royce mixtape tracks. And that's where we all kind of met in the middle, listening to Slaughterhouse, because Trap was really into, uh, into buttons. Yeah. And, yeah. But it was for the people who liked that early 2000s sound and still were listening to that sound while younger people were moving on to more sung hip-hop and more techno in mm -hmm. our space. 
And it's perfect that you just mentioned that. So I'll get you to where we are today. So um, Budden being the old curmudgeonly old head of hip hop that he is, he and having the, the kind of cult following that he still had and the respect that he has amongst lyricists and hip hop for his resume that we just mentioned, or glossed over rather, he was in this position to work with uh, DJ academics on a show called Everyday Struggle on Complex. So the show, I begrudgingly watched it because it was the, the colliding of two worlds. It was the new school DJ academics who got all of his, uh, his followers from making very TMZ gossipy uh, YouTube videos about um, just the dumbest things in hip hop, like the gun violence in Chicago and following every SoundCloud trap rapper and all the drama and all the dirt, he gets his massive following. So he's more into who's popping, whose Instagram is this, that, and the third. Budden is the old hip hop head and they clash on this show Everyday Struggle. So I, I would watch it. The people who are watching it are from both sides and it didn't really help <laughs> a whole lot. It led to him yelling at Lil Yachty and then rappers like Wale wanting to smack DJ academics. The show didn't really get us anywhere as a community. It didn't really push the culture forward as they intended. It was mostly just people not hearing each other's sides. So uh, Budden left there. There were some disputes financially. He left the show. It's still on, but I don't watch it. And his podcast has a very loyal following. They've been going on the road where they talk about it has kind of the vibe of like a barbershop conversation about hip hop. It's very less structured than an actual talk show or an actual podcast. It's just guys kind of getting around to topics if and when they get to them. And you kind of, it kind of pulls you in that way, or at least it does for me. And I know a lot of my friends watch, uh, watch and listen to the button podcast as well. Uh, Diddy obviously is a fan and thinks he can make some money off of it. So he signed Button to Revolt. And the Joe Button podcast is about to get moved to Spotify, I believe. And they might start putting that up on Revolt too. So he's seen as somebody who does have a voice in hip hop, like a veteran MC that will talk about the state of the culture. And he is funny and he does have uh, an entertaining personality. And then especially around his friends who are always keeping him honest, kind of making fun of him. It does make for a good listen, although a lot of times there's not a lot of substance. So I'll say there's give and take for that. So it'd be interesting to see how they try to turn it into a show. Question. So I was seeing that and I had heard that he was on Love and Hip Hop and that there was some interaction between him and Cardi B. And I saw that he was on Love and Hip Hop New York between 2013 and 2014. So did Everyday Struggle come first or was it Love and Hip Hop and then Everyday Struggle? Love and Hip Hop was first. Okay. And I think that, he started... Well, that say what? brought his, his profile more to the mainstream, more so than the Slaughterhouse thing did with yeah, Hip Hop. It did because he, uh, he was on there with rappers like Fabulous and T.I., I think. I, I didn't watch Love and Hip Hop and I hate when they talk about it on the show because they're mentioning a bunch of people I don't know. But... Yeah, it did raise his profile quite a bit and probably brought a lot of people into the podcast since they talk about it regularly. Apparently, um, it was like one of the, here it is, it was one of the highest rated unscripted franchise in cable television history. 
and it was the most popular show in the black belt which uh for listeners who don't know in the south and the mid-atlantic uh, all the areas that originally had a lot of the plantations where slaves lived um, have been historically black regions of the country and this this region where if you look at demographic charts you can see it uh, has been historically called the black belt and so it's saying that uh, yeah it basically dominated uh, those television markets yeah and they they kind of use those elements to their advantage when they go on the road so they do uh they do like truth or dare with couples in the crowd and stuff like that and upload those. That's not really my cup of tea, but it, I mean, they cater to a lot of different audiences. I'm going to close this real quick. The soundtrack came back, so. Yeah, it sounds like a little Yachty song is about to start. Pretty much, or Takeshi or something. Yeah. Is he all right? Oh, I heard he in the hospital he got assaulted or something like yeah he's beefing with ludicrous he that's his thing yeah of all the people, of all the people i know is <laughs> god if you mention him he just goes hammer i think he's losing his uh his bite a little bit because if you threaten to murder literally everyone who talks about you and then you never do it i don't think people are gonna think that you're gonna do it anymore so what? So does does button matter in the future? I mean, like to me, I just I've never been able to get fully invested in him because I'm just like, what do you do? <laughs> like, what value do you bring? Uh, but maybe that's just the era we're in now. I mean, with the um, reality television show and reality television presidents, um, that like it's just about personality more than value. Mm-hmm. That's that's why he's you know people are are advertising his stuff like the thing the photo you sent me is that it's just well we know that somebody's paying attention so we're just gonna milk it you think that that's what it is I think that has something to do with it I mean that's how you get any business invested in you these days it's like do you already have eyes well then just transform over here and we'll make that audience bigger so what I what I want to see from this podcast is more structure because I think you do have a valid point in saying and challenging that and saying, I'm not going to listen to something where I'm not going to learn anything. And I feel like a lot of people are going to feel the same way. They're going to look at it and go, what am I supposed to be getting out of this? If they don't add some structure to it, because they can just go on rants about nothing for like long periods of time. So if I'm on a road trip and I'm listening to this whole podcast all at one time. Like, I would hope that there would be big pockets of, of meteor conversation, something that I'm actually going to scratch my head about or be like, okay, that was interesting, or I disagree with that, but that's not going to come without structure. So that has been something that frustrates me about their platform is that they do seem to kind of have that attitude where they're like, well, we can just put out whatever and people will listen to it. Because that is kind of the attitude of a lot of podcasters. So, yeah, I I don't know what the platform of the show is going to be. There hasn't been much information that's come out. So, I mean, he's been doing this thing called Pull Up where he just talks to an artist for like an hour. Or someone that's a personality that's somehow tied to hip hop. And it's I see what they're trying to do. I feel like he has all the talent to make it work but he has to adopt a little bit more of a journalistic mind state 
to keep it from just being rambling. And then it's like, I'm just watching two people have a conversation that I shouldn't be involved in. Okay. Makes more sense. Is there anything else you think that we need to kind of flush out about 2010s hip hop? I feel like we've kind of got the hierarchy and and we've got the actors. Um, I'm not sure that there's, is there anything I'm missing? I mean, there's all the uh, the next tier rappers. There's all those that that would fall under the uh, the big three, but I don't think we need to go into all of that because when we're talking about the grand scheme of the 2010s, I think we've covered the ones that are the most influential. I mean, yeah, because we're almost to 2020. Mm-hmm. And I think the next one we're waiting on, I mean, Cole's got some more projects coming that are mixtapes, and I think those are going to be really fun. I'm looking forward to that. But the next album should be Kendrick. So we'll see how that goes. You said something along the line that, like, uh, you're getting to a point where you might just be done with the avid fanboy period of at least hip-hop music. I don't know if you meant music in general. What did you mean by that? I think I kind of just mean music. I think it's just where I'm getting age-wise in my mentality. It's like some of the more frivolous stuff, it has a time and a place. But, I mean, I'm not in those places at those times anymore. So it, um, I don't care about club records. I, I don't want to hear stuff that doesn't add value to my life unless it's really good. It has to be a really good product for me to want to listen to it. So I just have my gym music. And like I said, like we kind of covered in this podcast, I mean, like the last three really, really exciting artists are Cole Drake and Kendrick. And I feel like they're going to hang it up soon within the next five years for sure. So, I mean, and Jay-Z... I mean, how much longer can Jay-Z honestly stay interested in rapping? Well, I, my prediction for Jay-Z is that he's going to continue to do this thing where he's writing uh, Beyonce sound because she's going to have another, she has another like 20 years of longevity. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I think he'll just throw in a verse here or there to like kind of pepper it with some hip hop flair. But I, I, yeah, I, I don't think that, well, I say that, but then... 444 was what it was. It was a great album. It was a great album, yeah. I mean, it was one of his better albums of all time. Mm -hmm. Back to the formula. He might just, you know, he might defy logic and be the first geriatric rapper. (laughs) He's going to be the Sinatra of rap. If we're making old school musical reference, Jay-Z is absolutely our generation Sinatra. (laughs) (laughs) Cozied up with the president. Mob ties, suits, cigars. He's gonna do it till he dies. <laughs> like Tony Bennett, maybe. Tony Bennett was in there, boy. He yeah. Sinatra. Yeah. <laughs> I still, I still remember when uh, Jay Z was on Bill Maher, and he, uh, he said something. Maher said something to Jay Z about Obama uh, doing him a favor, and he was like, he did that Jay Z laugh. I can't do a Jay Z impression, so I'm gonna butcher it. <laughs> He's like. <laughs> Your boy, he was like, <laughs> he was like, yeah, he owes me a couple, and then he did that Jay Z laugh, and, and we were like, what are you talking about? 
basically saying Obama owes him a couple of favors, and he's probably not wrong about that. <laughs> Word him up. Well, hey, man, uh, I'm going to get going here because I'm really trying to figure out these ticket things. Uh, we we got to go see Arizona State get beat by USC. We just have to see it. Mm. So, uh, and it's very difficult to purchase these tickets when you have a very passionate debate about hip-hop. So, absolutely right. I, I appreciate the combo, though, and I'm glad we had an impromptu episode eight. Boom, bonus episode. You're welcome. And we will be having our next episode. I believe. What's today? What's the date today? Um, 25th or 26th. Oh, shit. Okay. I need to holler at my buddy. We might be having our next episode with the future mayor of Plymouth, Minnesota, which is Plymouth, Minnesota. But what's interesting is uh, we're going to talk about the refugee crisis from the Muslim perspective, American Muslim perspective. I think it'll be really interesting to see uh, what he has to say and kind of what we can bring before in terms of uh, kind of the numbers behind this and the trends behind the issue. Mm-hmm. So, until yeah, then, that's going to be a good one. I said, uh, so until then, right? Oh yeah, for sure. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's the ice cream truck. Now I want ice cream and it's getting me all in my head. No dude. Like I'll be at school and I'm hearing this music. And I'm just like kind of maybe whistling it to myself. It's it, it doesn't fit this conversation that we're having. Well, I mean, Gucci, <laughs> I guess if we were talking about Gucci Mane. Burp. <laughs> All right, man. I'll see you later.